Well, welcome to The Grace Course. My name is Steve Goss, and this is my friend, Rich Miller. Now, what's your favorite hymn? Different people uh, might like different ones. Don't know whether there are any dentists here, but if you were a dentist, maybe you'd go for crown him with many crowns. If you, were, <laughs> if you were a paramedic, it could be revive us again. But I think my favorite would be if you were a baker, it would be when the roll is called up yonder. <laughs> but for many people, uh, I think the, the real answer to that question would be Amazing Grace. Um, a lot of people say, that's my favorite hymn. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Apparently, Amazing Grace is sung around 10 million times a year around the world. And I think poor old John Newton would be doing okay if he was getting the royalties on that, but he isn't. I've been a Christian a long time now, and I think I've sung it nearly as many times myself. Now, this course is all about grace. And Paul tells us in Romans 5 that Christians have obtained an introduction into God's grace by faith. And I think when I would think of grace, um, I would tend to think of the time when I first became a Christian, when God sent Jesus to die for me, and I realized that for the first time. But Peter tells us, this is 2 Peter 3.18, that God wants us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the grace that we're looking at, perhaps primarily on the course, is the grace that God wants us to experience every moment of every day throughout the rest of our lives. And although Newton's wonderful hymn starts by talking about the grace that saved us the moment we first turned to Christ, it does of course go on to say, through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come, tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And the objective of this course is to help you know what it means to experience God's grace every day in the real nitty gritty details of life so that you can be fruitful to the fullest possible extent. And that's an exciting prospect. Well, Steve and I are gonna have a lot of fun doing this course and we hope you enjoy it too. I'm, I'm really passionate about the grace course because grace has changed my life. In fact, Grace has changed my wife. <laughs> Her name is Shirley Grace, and God knew I surely need a lot of grace in my life. And the other reason I'm passionate about this course is because it's so needed in the church. It's, it's like a cool breeze on a hot day. It's good news. In preparation for writing a book on legalism and grace with Dr. Neil Anderson <clears throat> and Paul Travis, we contracted with the George Barna Research Group to do a scientific study. And this was of American Christianity. We asked followers of Christ to respond to six statements. One of them was this. The Christian life is well summed up as trying hard to obey God's commands. Care to wonder how many people believe that's a good way to describe the Christian life? We were astonished. 82% of those surveys said, yes, we agree with that statement. In fact, 57% of them agreed strongly now, there's nothing wrong with that statement, except for the fact it's totally wrong. <laughs> you know, there's nothing in there about grace, nothing in there about faith, nothing about love, nothing about a relationship with God. There's nothing about Jesus. So what was our conclusion based on that survey? Well, we concluded that law-based living, rather than grace-based living, is epidemic in the church. 
So to get us started, I'd like to ask you a question. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. That's in John 14, 15. Now imagine him saying that to you, just to you personally. How would you hear him saying it? What expression would be on his face? Would it be this or this? Before we finish this session, we hope that we can clear up any confusion you might have and resolve that question. So let's begin by looking at a story that Jesus told that will really help us come to grips with God's grace. It comes out of Luke chapter 15. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, do you realize he might as well have said to his dad, I wish you'd drop dead, because a father's inheritance was to come after his death, but this son just couldn't wait. So, the father divided his property between them, and not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country, and he squandered all his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything he had, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out at, to a citizen of that country, who sent him out to the fields to feed pigs. Scripture says he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, Huh, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went back to his father. Well, this younger boy had turned his back completely on the way of life that he'd been brought up in. And what Jesus is clearly trying to do is paint a picture of somebody whose behavior was the worst imaginable in his culture. He showed no respect whatsoever for his father. That was a big deal. He engaged in adultery, spent his money on prostitutes. When he had no money left, he stooped so low that he took a job looking after the animal, um, which was the height of uncleanness to Jews, pigs. It's difficult to imagine that Jesus could have added anything in whereby he would have behaved any worse or less deservingly of his title as son. And so in the story, this younger brother realizes that he's blown it. Um, and so he decides to return to his father, not expecting to be received as a son anymore, but hoping simply for a job as a hired hand, one who would have to earn anything that might come from the father. Let's pick up the story again. Jesus continued. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The father ran. In that culture, wealthy men never, ever did that. Love for his son overcame all the social norms. Jesus continued, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, his pre-prepared line. Was it true, do you think, that he was no longer worthy to be called a son? Well, Nothing could change the fact that he was the son and always would be. The father's DNA was always going to be in him. But I think it probably was true that he, his 
actions made him not worthy to be considered a son. But watch how the father reacts. It's almost as if he's not even listening to these well-rehearsed words that the son trots out. Uh, the father saw the son's heart. He knew that he was sorry and that he'd come back. And that's all that mattered. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. This is the only character in the story, by the way, for whom the whole thing is really bad news. <laughs> for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The son expected to be disowned or at best to be severely punished. And that would have been what he deserved. Yet, what did the father do? He immediately embraced the smelly, dirty, broken kid, puts the best clothes on him and throws a party to end all parties. Just incredible. And he also gives him three things that had great significance. First of all, the father gave him a robe. Now, this wasn't any old robe, but the best robe in the house. Might have been the father's own robe, not some old dirty bathrobe or something. It symbolized that the son had once again been given the right to enjoy the place of right standing with the father. Now, he'd always been loved, but now he was completely restored. The second thing he was given by the father was a ring. Now, this would have been a signet-type ring that would make a mark on an official document or letter and would be instantly recognizable as the Father's mark. Without that mark or that seal, there'd be no authority behind the instructions inside the document. The ring symbolized power and authority to carry out the Father's business. This boy, who had squandered his father's wealth in wild living, was being recommissioned, so to speak, and honored with the trust of his father to go about his father's business once again, telling people what they needed to do. And they would have to do it because he was wearing the ring of authority on his finger. Now, the third thing the father tells the servants to bring is sandals. Now, in a Jewish household, uh, the only people who were allowed to wear footwear in the house were the father and his sons. So the father was declaring in no uncertain terms, that this boy, despite everything he had done, was still his son, entitled to the rights of a son. Now this is the grace course, but what is grace? I'm going to resist giving you a definition, actually. Let's just pause for a minute and take in that scene. A son who has behaved in the worst way imaginable returns. His father restores him simply because he loves him and wants a relationship with him. This is grace. A child utterly bereft of anything, throwing himself on the mercy of his father who picks him up, dusts him down and restores him. A son who had completely and utterly blown it, who had no rights and certainly no right to expect anything from the father except maybe what he might be allowed to earn, standing there in his rich robe with his ring of authority, which means even though he's squandered half the family fortune, he can sign checks again. And the sandals that marked him out as one of the family. This is grace. 
That's grace. I spent um, 13 years in drug addiction, uh, heroin being my drug of choice. And um, I went into Teen Challenge and saw others being set free. Um, I went up to um, what they call the upper room and I sat down and I put some worship music on and I started to pray. And my prayer really was, you know, I know that you're real. Um, I've seen you set others free. Where's my freedom? And that was the night um, Christ really came into my life and set me free. Um, but not only did he take the addiction or the cravings and the urges and the desires away, he set me free from the depression, from the sleepless nights, from the hurt, the anger, the pain, all the things that led me to use the drugs in the first place. You know, when I looked at the Bible, it was a book of rules to me. Um, it was a book that said you have to do this and you have to do that. When I experienced true freedom, I realized how much God loved me and I came into that personal relationship. Um, in the context of a prodigal son story, I'm the son that's, I'm, you know, sitting back in the house. I have the royal robe. I've been given the ring and the slippers. And, you know, the feeling is that I've just enjoyed the fatted calf. We've had the meal and, um, you know, I love life today. I love being alive. I love helping others. Um, I love telling people the freedom that I have. I love being able to share my testimony. Um, you know, people say to me, you know, it must have been horrible to have been through all that stuff. Um, not when I'm able to tell them the end of the story, that God is real, that Jesus is real, that the same miracles he done when he was alive uh, 2,000 years ago, the same Christ that's alive today is still doing the same miracles 2,000 years later. Now, those of us who've been Christians a while, we know this story pretty well, don't we? But we tend to relate it to the time when we first came to Christ. We focus on this first son. We even tend to call it the parable of the prodigal son, even though actually there are two sons in the story. What does the story have to say to us now for our Christian life as we live it day by day? Does it just reflect this one-off moment in the past when we first came back to the Father, or is there more to say? Well, Steve, it, it sure says a lot to me. Uh, I remember back when I was a kid, I got a glimpse of my father's love through my dad. At that time, I wanted just about every kind of animal that you could see on TV, and the one I wanted the most was a horse. Now, I didn't have any idea how much a horse would cost, but I knew it was more money than I had <laughs> at that moment, so I concocted a plot. It was a Thursday evening, my dad had just been paid, and there was a wad of $20 bills in my mom's purse um, by the telephone. My mom and dad were around the corner watching TV. So I figured they wouldn't miss just one of them, so I picked one of them out and came up with this idea. I got an envelope the next day and put the $20 bill in the envelope and went down to the woods where I enjoyed playing. And I rubbed the envelope with a $20 bill in it for quite a while in the dirt to make it look like it had been there for a while. And then about an hour later, I came running home, yelling to my mom, hey mom, mom, look, I found $20 in the woods. My mom said, hey, that's great. You can use that toward your horse. 
I thought I had committed the crime of the century. <laughs> but I didn't count on one factor, my conscience. The next day I was playing baseball and my dad was watching from sitting up on a little hill nearby. And when I finished playing, I started walking towards him. And I felt more and more guilty, more and more miserable as I got closer and closer to him. And finally, when I got to him, I sort of blubbered, oh, Dad, I didn't find that money, I stole it. My dad said, son, your mother and I knew that you had stolen that money, but we were just waiting for you to come and tell us. Well, at that point, the faucets came on. I mean, I just was crying, hugging my dad, and, and he hugged me, and I just knew that it was going to be okay, that I was forgiven. See, even though at that time my dad was not a follower of Christ, neither was I, but both of us have come to know the Lord, I still remember that moment as a place of grace, where my dad, earthly dad, was like my heavenly father. You know, and, and things are the same with us and God. He knows all that we've done, yet he still loves us. He's just waiting for us to come and talk to him about it. And we can always do that. Now think about it. What's the worst thing that you've ever done? Got it in your head right now? Okay, take out a piece of paper and write it down. Thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> what's he going to do with that? No, I'm just kidding. But what if that terrible thing that you have in your mind right now, what if you went out and did it again, or something even worse, and then sincerely came back to God? What kind of a reception would you get with your father? See, the beauty and the logic of this story is that you would be treated in the same way, the exact same way, as the boy in the story. This is grace, and it really is amazing. Now, does the thought that you as a Christian could behave in the worst possible way and then come back to God with a relationship still secure, does that not sit quite right with you? Well, let's step back and look at why Jesus told this story in the first place. The context is that he was clearly setting himself up as a religious teacher, but he sure didn't act like a typical religious teacher. He was always mixing with the wrong crowd, uh, uh, so-called sinners and tax collectors and all those kind of people, and they all complained, the religious people did, that this man welcomes sinners and even sits down to eat with them. In response, Jesus told a series of stories, and this is the third story. So he told it in response to the accusation, Jesus did, that his behavior was wrong, that it was somehow displeasing to God. The whole point of the story is that it is not our behavior that puts us into right relationship with God. It's his grace. Now, as we're going to see, it's not as if the son's behavior didn't matter. It did matter. Sin always has consequences. But one of those consequences was not the ending of his relationship with the Father. That's what it means to be a child of God. You will always be a child of God, even if you fall flat on your face and make a complete mess. God gives you freedom to fail. He's rooting for you. He's given you everything you need so that you don't have to fail. But if you do, his loving arms are always there to welcome you back pick you up, dust you down, no matter how badly you've messed up. This is a shocking thing, don't you think? It really is genuinely shocking. 
It's exactly what the Bible says. Look at 1 John 2 verse 1, for example. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. There's an old heresy that's nearly as old as the gospel itself. It's called antinomianism. When I first heard that word, I thought it referred to people who were against the practice of putting little plastic garden gnomes in, in your garden. <laughs> but apparently it really means anti-law. What antinomianism does is it takes this great biblical truth that we've been looking at and pushes it too far. It says that since we're saved by God's grace through faith, there's no need for any kind of moral law. So our behavior doesn't actually matter at all. Now, it may be starting to sound to some of you as if that's what we're saying and that's where we're going. So I want to reassure you at this point that it isn't. And so if you bear with us, um, I'm confident that you'll see that and you'll get the full picture. Well, maybe you still think it's your behavior that makes you acceptable to God, as the religious people in Jesus' day clearly did. If you still struggle with making sense of what we've said, you're not alone, as the story goes on to show. The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back again safe and sound. Well, the other brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. And you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. And somewhere on the farm, a young goat looks up with a worried expression on its face and says, this is bad. <clears throat> it's you, you're making me do it. <laughs> but when this son of yours, now notice how the older brother has rejected relationship with his younger brother. This son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate because this brother of yours, see how the father's trying to restore relationship there? This brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So you've got this other character in the story who's often overlooked. But in many ways, he is the one that Jesus was specifically addressing. There was another brother who didn't throw everything back in his father's face. He stayed and he worked hard. He always towed the line. He always did what was expected of him. And he clearly represents the religious people of the day, the ones who've just made the accusation to Jesus that his behavior was wrong. He represents the people who thought that they could please God by doing the right things, by behaving the right way. And he is completely unable to get his head around this concept of grace. To him, it's quite straightforward. You earn the Father's favour by what you do. And so when his brother returned, after all that had been done, and instead of being turned away, or at the very least severely disciplined, 
He has a party thrown for him. The older brother is incandescent with rage. You can almost hear him spluttering, can't you? You know, but, 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 all these years, I've done everything right. I've played by the rules and you never threw a party for me. It's so unfair. <laughs> he didn't understand that the father's love and acceptance was as little to do with his good outward behavior as it was with the younger son's bad outward behavior. The point of the story is, it is nothing to do with behavior. It's all about grace. You see, this elder brother had an eye on the inheritance that one day he hoped to receive in return for slaving away, as he put it. Now we imagine fathers taking their sons, as wealthy landowning farmers, taking their sons up to the highest point of the estate and saying to them, look son, one day, all this will be yours. Well, this father does something similar but different. He says to him, look at the estate. And then he says, everything I have is yours. Look around you. It's already yours. Everything I have is yours. And the truth is, he could have been enjoying everything the father had for years. But instead, he chose to slave away thinking that he was going to have to earn the father's inheritance. But in fact, the father just loved him anyway. And the inheritance was there all along for him to enjoy. What a tragedy, don't you think, to go through life slaving away for something that you already have. You know what? Most Christians I know are like this brother. We don't know what we already have. We don't know who we already are now that we're in Christ. Now, theologically, we know that the Christian life is about grace. We know it's not about obeying rules. But in practice, if you look at our lives, you might get the distinct impression that we do think it's about how we behave. We know we're saved by grace. And we'd never put it like this, but we sort of slip into a mentality of thinking that we have to maintain that salvation by what we do. We have to tick the right boxes. We would never say it again, but in practice, we show that what we believe is that what determines our right standing with God is doing this, doing that, doing the other, whatever it is. But the staggering point of the story is that Jesus is telling us very clearly that our acceptance by God is absolutely nothing to do with how we behave. It's entirely down to his grace. Now, I'm very aware that left to my own devices, I would be like the older brother. I spent many years actually extremely like the older brother. Thinking back to uh, when I was a teenager, when I first became a Christian, when I went wrong and sinned, and usually it was something like lustful thoughts, I didn't realize that I could come straight back to God, into his presence, and that all would be well. I somehow felt that I had to earn my way back into God's favor. You know, when I felt I'd done something wrong, I didn't dare approach God. I saw him as this holy being, which of course he is, but I saw myself as like a little worm <laughs> and I couldn't crawl into his presence. So when I finally did crawl back, I didn't feel worthy uh, really to hold my head up as a Christian again until I'd had three really good quiet times in a row. It really was like that for me. And that is absolutely not how God wants us to be. 
You are so right about that, Steve. That's not how God wants us to be. And Jesus told a story, you may not be familiar with it, but it's in Matthew chapter 20 that illustrates this even more. It's about some laborers in a vineyard. The owner of the vineyard hired some workers in the marketplace early in the morning and offered them the standard payment of one denarius for a day's work. The owner went out a little bit later and hired some more workers, promising to pay them whatever was right. He actually went out three more times during the day and hired more workers. The final time was in the 11th hour, about one hour before the workday was over. Now, when it came to paying these workers, they all received the same wage of one denarius, no matter how long it was that they had been working. Now, the workers who were hired first, even though they received exactly what they'd been promised, were outraged. The owner's response was this, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Again, the point is that what you receive from God is determined by His generosity, not by our hard work. Again, this is grace. So the younger son traded in the place of grace and privilege that he'd been born into, and he chose to walk away from the relationship with his father. The elder brother didn't do that, did he? Or did he? Actually, I think he did. See, it wasn't just the younger son who was having an identity crisis, who'd removed himself from his position of intimacy and joy and being at home with a father. In reality, neither of them stayed in relationship with him. The younger brother found himself physically removed in a distant land with the pigs. Now, the elder brother never left home physically, but where was his heart? In his heart, he was a long way away too. In the story, Jesus doesn't place him in the home which is where you would expect to find the son, with the father, enjoying fellowship. Instead, where is he? He's out in the fields, with whom? The hired servants. He's working hard, or as he himself put it, he's slaving away. Now this was a dishonorable place for the elder son to be. Instead of taking his place at the father's side, enjoying the father's favor and blessings, in effect, he had taken on the identity of a hired servant the very identity that the younger son was hoping he might get in the best possible circumstances. The father's presence alone wasn't enough for the elder son. He preferred to strive for what he thought the father would give him later. He was forever trying to make the father bless him by seeking to do everything right externally, but internally his heart was a long way away. And so the younger brother walked away from his identity as son, but he joyfully received it back through grace because he chose to turn back to the father. The older brother, who represented the religious people, he walked away from it too. But in the story, at least, he didn't turn back. I think Jesus left it hanging as an open question, actually. The father's grace was available to him just as it had been to his brother. But he didn't experience it because he chose not to turn away from his wrong thinking and turn back to his father. And what Jesus was doing here, he was showing the religious people that if they thought that outward behavior was what it took to earn God's favor, they were terribly deceived. And again, we wanna make it very, very clear that what we do in this life is important. 
fact, the Apostle Paul tells us at the end of the age, there's going to be a day when all our works, what we've done, will be tested. And he uses the image of a building and talks about Christ being the foundation of that building, and we have a choice of how we're going to build on that foundation. Let's look at the scripture. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. 1 Corinthians 3. So, there is a foundation of Christ laid by God's grace, and we have a choice of how we're going to build on it. When these works that we do in our lives are finally tested in heaven, fire is going to come. And the works that are of no value, those that are done in our own strength, created by our own minds, designed to make us look good, things like that, the Bible calls them wood, hay, and straw, and they're going to be burned up. But the works that are of value, the works that God wants done, and are done in His strength and for His honor, that's called gold, silver, and precious stones, and they will remain for all eternity. That's exciting. Well, I don't know about you. But I'm not interested in one day watching my whole life go up in smoke. I want to make sure that what I do lasts for eternity. Now, the other side of that coin is, we want to assure you, Romans 8.1 tells us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's clear that even if, tragically, your works would be burned up, this is not a salvation issue. You are still saved, but only as through fire, as the scripture said turning up before God with nothing, I guess, but a pair of singed eyebrows. You know. But the big question about our works is, will there be any commendation? Will the things that we do in this life actually be of any value for eternity? You see, the religious people thought that their religious works were good in themselves, but Jesus told them that since they were doing things to impress other people, they already had the reward, men's approval but there would be no reward from God for them. So it's very crucial that we understand how to build with gold, silver, and precious stones. So based on what Richard's just said, here's a question for you. Do you think you can look at what someone is doing and tell whether it is pleasing to God or not? Well, sometimes you probably could, but by no means always. You know that Jesus says that some will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? But he will say to them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Two people can be doing exactly the same good seeming thing, feeding the poor perhaps, spending an hour a day reading God's word and praying. One will be delighting God and the other won't. What's the difference? Let's have a look at King David for a minute. When God chose David to be king of Israel, his family couldn't believe it because he was the youngest and the smallest. Um, his older brother thought he was just a little pest. But Samuel the prophet said something very profound. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on 
the heart. Towards the end of the Old Testament, God makes a very significant promise that we'll come back to in a future session, that he will write his laws, not on tablets of stone, like the Ten Commandments were written, but where? On our hearts. On our hearts. And what is important to God is not so much what we do, but why we do it. It's our motivation. God has never taken pleasure from people just obeying a set of rules outwardly if they're not doing it from the heart. And that really is the whole point of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that we call the love chapter, where it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is critical. So the difference is what's happening on the inside, in the heart. God judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. It's not to do with our behavior per se. It's all about our motivation, why we're doing what we're doing. And if that motivation is not love, then what we do, no matter how good or religious or noble it looks, it's worth precisely nothing. It's wood, hay, and straw. 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. God wants our motivation to be love and nothing but love. But it's true that we can be easily motivated by other things instead of love. For example, we could be motivated by guilt. That would be the attitude that says, I don't want God to be upset with me, so I try my best to avoid doing wrong. But I end up doing what's wrong anyway and end up feeling even more guilty and end up in this joyless cycle of self-condemnation. It's easy to get into that. And shame. This is where I know I'm a disappointment to God and to other people as well. But I feel if I can just somehow be a better person, then maybe, maybe God will think I'm worthy of his love. Besides guilt and shame, there's also a fear that can be a, a wrong motivator. Fear says I'm scared that God might be angry with me. I've heard the promises in the Bible, but they don't really seem to apply to me. Maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I've committed the unforgivable sin. And the fourth wrong motivator that we'll be talking about is pride. A pride's like bad breath. <laughs> Everyone knows you've got it except you. and Nobody's going to tell you you've got it. Now, pride says, I know I don't measure up to God's standards. But then again, who does? You know, I feel much better when I compare myself to other people. I've really studied doctrine and theology, and I've made sure that mine is absolutely correct. In fact, I measure what others say against my theology. Wouldn't that be a pleasant person to be around? <clears throat> In future sessions, we're going to look at each of these issues, and we'll have the opportunity to root out these false motivators and ensure that it's love for Christ that compels us and nothing else. Let's understand a key concept, key biblical concept, that what we do comes from who we are. What we do comes from who we are. 
So who are you? Can I invite you to pause with me and consider two pictures from that story? First, the younger son, at the point that he collapses into his father's arms and casts himself on his father's mercy. He can scarcely believe his father's grace as he realizes that even though he richly deserves it, he's not gonna be punished. He's forgiven, he's accepted back. But look at him, look at the state he's in. He also knows that he's dirty, smelly, broken. He's deeply ashamed of what he's become. Now this is how many of us see ourselves as Christians, forgiven, but believing that we're still essentially the same, no good, rotten people we always were. It's as if our understanding of the gospel stops with Good Friday. Jesus died for my sins, and I'm gonna to go to heaven when I die, but nothing much changes right now. But the father doesn't leave the son there, does he, Rich? No, we're so thankful that he didn't. Here's the second picture. Same son, just a few minutes later, dressed in the finest robe with a ring on his fingers, sandals on his feet, feasting on the finest food. Of course, he's still aware of his past failures, yet it's beginning to dawn on him that he's not been just forgiven, but completely restored to his position as son, with free access to everything his father owns, along with great power and authority. Now, he knows he doesn't deserve any of it. He realizes he's totally dependent upon his father's grace and mercy and love. You know, the whole scene is almost unbelievable, but it's actually happening. Let me ask you a question. Which picture most accurately represents how you see yourself in relation to God? In my experience, most Christians get stuck on the first picture, knowing they're forgiven, but still feeling like miserable sinners, constantly letting God down. So we'd like to encourage you to move on to the second picture in your own thinking. We need to make it past Good Friday and get through to Easter Sunday. Now I know that you celebrate Easter Sunday in your churches, but what do you celebrate on Easter Sunday? You celebrate that Christ rose from the dead, right? Well, and of course he did. But I still think that maybe to miss the point somewhat. Now we, on Good Friday, we have no trouble in realizing that it's Jesus died for our sins. So something happened to us on Good Friday. We were forgiven. But then when you make it through to Easter Sunday, the good news is that we rose from the dead. We were restored with Christ to new life. And that makes all the difference. What it means is that we became somebody completely new. We were restored to the people we were always meant to be before Adam blew it. And we need to know that we are now holy ones, saints, if you like. That's, how, that's the normal term the Bible uses to describe Christians. And it means that we're holy. 2 Peter 1.4 says that we share God's very nature. Get your mind around that, that you, if you're in Christ, you share God's very nature. Yeah, but what about all I've done? I'm dirty. I'm, Move on to the second picture. Move on to the second picture. And that's not all, by the way. We also are identified with Christ in his ascension to the right hand of the Father. So we're identified with Christ in his death, in his resurrection, and in his ascension. So in Christ, we too sit at the right hand of the Father, the ultimate seat of power and authority anywhere. 
Now, if you want to be free, to be compelled by love, motivated by love, you have to know that you are more than just forgiven. You have to know that you, like the younger son, have been completely restored and that deep down now, deep down, you are absolutely acceptable and indeed a delight to God. Now, knowing all those things doesn't need to make you proud or anything like that. You can stay in that place of utter amazement of God's goodness. You can retain the healthy awareness. In fact, it's essential to retain the healthy awareness that without him, you can't do a single thing of any eternal significance. Without him, it's all wood, hay and straw. But with him, the sky's the limit. The, the story of the prodigal son, I learned it when I was at Sunday school many years ago. And at the beginning of the grace course, when Steve referred to it, I said to myself, I can relax here for a moment or two. I know it inside out. However, when it came to the second part of the story, when the lost son returned home and the father gave him the robe, that really impacted me mightily. It, it was an incredible experience. Because until then, even though I'd lived with this story and I'd known it since childhood and I'd been through college and seminary and all of that, I suppose I would have seen the robe in terms of a covering. Uh, it, it meant that God could look at me, but inside, underneath this cloak, I was still the same. But when Steve referred to the significance of this, this new dress, this new attire, something significant happened in my life. The, 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 the unconditional love of God came home to me in a fresh new way and, and that has been a transforming experience. Just to know that I am loved, that there is nothing I can do to make God love me more and there's nothing I can do to make him love me less. And that is absolutely amazing and it lifts me to become the person that he wants me to be. It's not based on performance, it's not based on achievement or success, it's being who I am in Christ. Now, this whole concept that our acceptance by God and our new identity has nothing to do with our behavior kind of goes against the way you think it ought to work. I mean, it's kind of counterintuitive. And it's not what many of us have learned or grown up with as Christians necessarily. Uh, many times we've tended to be like the older brother, acting as if what we do is the primary thing. So we ask the question, what must I do to be accepted by God? And the answer is, if you're a Christian, you're already accepted by God. I know, but what should I do? <laughs> you know, we want to know what to do. It's already been done for us. And sadly, most churches have been happy to come up with a list of things to do. Read your Bible every day, come to church every week or several times a week. Well, again, are those good things? Yeah, of course they are. But the problem is that our discipleship can often end up being a list and a load of rules. And we struggle to obey those rules because we've gotten things backwards. We think that God is most into rules when he's most into relationship. As part of that research done by the George Barner Group, we asked people to respond to this statement. Quote, Rigid rules and strict standards are an important part of the life and teaching of our church. Now, we use words that typically people don't like, like rigid and strict. Still, do you care to know what percentage said they agreed with that statement? 66%, two-thirds. 
Now, I understand that some churches preach grace. And because people are just sort of clogged in their souls and can't get it, they still hear law. But in reality, many churches teach that you've got to work hard and toe the line for God to smile at you. But the way it's really supposed to work is that what we do comes out of who we are, not the other way around. So first, we need to know who we are in Christ, God's loved, accepted, and secure children. You know, if you read any of Paul's letters to the churches and see how far you get before he gives an instruction on what to do or how to behave, you'll get at least halfway through. The first half is critically important, though, so don't just jump to the second half. It's all about what's already been done for you, uh, what you already have, who you already are in Christ. See, Paul knows that if you grasp that, the rest will flow naturally. If you love me, you will obey my commands. There's that verse again. Come back for a moment to the picture of the younger brother. Standing there looking cool and sharp with the full rights and privileges of a son, yet knowing that he doesn't deserve it one bit. How do you think he's going to act from that point on? Won't he just want to do the very best for his father, just out of his heart? Is it going to feel like slaving away to him? No. He'll be so grateful just to be in that honored position and to have a father who loves him so much. See, God's love and acceptance of you and me has nothing, nothing, nothing to do with our behavior at all. But here's the rest of the story. When you stop trying to act like a Christian should act or the way you think a Christian should act and just simply live out of the truth of who you are, guess what's going to happen? you'll find you want to do what's right, and you will do what's right, naturally, or really supernaturally. You'll obey God. Over the years, I've spoken many times on the telephone to a guy I've never met. When I first spoke to him, he was in a psychiatric institution. Uh, he's been diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic. Uh, he found his freedom in Christ through listening to recordings of our teaching and taking himself through a process called the Steps to Freedom in Christ, which is something that we'll talk a little bit more as we go through the course. Now, this guy went from somebody who was in and out of mental institutions and on a lot of heavy medication to somebody who's restored uh, to a, what you might call a normal functioning member of society, and he's apparently lost seven and a half stone in weight. That's over a hundred pounds. I've never met him. I've only spoken to him on the phone, so I kind of hope he didn't start at nine stone. But. <laughs> the most recent phone call I had with him was uh, he called me to tell me that he had got into sexual sin with a young lady. And he'd already got to the point where he had resolved that God still loved him and accepted him back. He'd also broken off the relationship with the young lady concerned to ensure that the sin didn't repeat. And then he said something that I thought was so profound that I wrote it down. He said, I used to think God was a guy with a big stick, but now I know that he loves me. The reason I want to stop sinning is because I don't want to keep hurting someone who loves me so much. And that's it. See, paradoxically, Understanding this concept is the key to behaving in a way that really honors God. Now, the word that the elder son uses for slaving away is interesting. 
it carries the meaning that you would expect um, from a translation, that of a slave who's owned by someone else, who has no rights whatsoever, but just has to do whatever their owner, their master, commanded. The New Testament term for this is something called a bond slave. And despite the fact that he was a son, the elder brother acted like a bond slave. Every time I think about bond slave, I can't get out of my mind the possibility of a bond slave called James, where you would turn up at the master's house and the, the bond slave would open the door and you say, who are you? You'd say, bond slave, James bond slave. No, no. I'm sorry, it's just getting worse, isn't it? I apologize, Rich, I'll try and improve. You are forgiven. Thank you. <laughs> Interestingly, this word, bond slave, seemed to take on a positive light in the early church. Paul describes himself as a bond slave of Christ in Romans 1.1. In Mark 10, the disciples are called upon to be the bond slave of all. And so how can this word, bond slave, have a, a positive light? Well, in New Testament times, it was very common for Roman masters to free their slaves, probably because they'd, they'd been part of the family, they'd performed well over many, many years, and they just thought, let's just release them, let them go. And there are lots of records of these bond slaves going on to start businesses, and many of them became very wealthy. And when they were freed, no matter where they'd come from in the world originally, they were given the right to become fully-fledged Roman citizens. It's quite a big deal. And so when you are given that right to leave, your master comes to you one day and says, thank you for all you've done, you can go. You are free to leave. But it wasn't uncommon for these freed men to stay in the household and continue to serve just as they had before, simply out of love for their master. From the outside, what they did day by day wouldn't have looked very different if any different. But don't you think there's a world of difference between doing what you do because you are forced to and have no choice and doing it simply out of love, out of a free choice? 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. Matthew 10.8 says, we give freely because we have received freely. And Luke 6.36 says, the reason we're merciful is because he has been merciful to us. And the reason that we are called upon to forgive is because we ourselves have been forgiven, Ephesians 4, 32. That's the principle. Understand how God comes to us. See, in Christ, you have been set free. He makes no demands of you. You are saved through grace by faith. You are free now to behave as you want to behave. It's your choice. But when you know his love, when you really know his love as it is, aren't you going to decide of your own free will, not any compulsion, to make yourself his bond slave? And that's the paradox of grace. It sounds as if it's saying it doesn't matter, but if you get grace, if you understand it, you will voluntarily choose to serve out of love. So we've kind of come full circle in this first session. Let's go back to Jesus' words again. He said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Now, how do you hear him saying that now? 
What expression do you imagine to be on his face? I hope you can see that he's just simply stating a fact. If you love me, you will obey my commands. He's not making some kind of threat. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. No, that's not at all. I think he has this great smile, a gentle smile on his face as he's saying it to you and me. See, it all starts by really getting to know the one who is love. Everything flows from that intimate love relationship with God. Now, at the start of our experience with Jesus, we know that we're the younger son. Uh, we know we need him, desperately need God's mercy. And at that point, we're meant to begin a journey of becoming like the father. But most of us, in fact, sadly, end up becoming more like the elder brother. Slaving away for God. Well, it's true, we are bond slaves with a master. But consider this master, the Lord. Is he a good master? Oh, he's a great master. And he has some significant, wonderful works that he's prepared for you in advance to do. But he doesn't force you in any way to do them. He will love you, whatever you do. However, as you make a choice to serve him just because you love him, you'll find it becomes a real joy and pleasure to do the work he gives you to do. But it all starts with knowing and growing in your understanding of the God of grace. I wonder if you're at the point when you might be ready of your own free will with no compulsion whatsoever to say to Jesus, I willingly make myself your bond slave because I recognize your grace. I'm gonna pray a prayer and if you want to, and only if you want to, just say it with me in your heart. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your grace. And I thank you that you are a great master. Lord, I thank you that you have set me free and that I don't have to do anything to get your acceptance or your love. I just have it. Thank you, Lord, that I don't have to perform in any way. And Lord, on the basis of that, I come to you now and I choose to make myself freely and voluntarily your bondservant. Take me, Lord, just as I am and use me in your kingdom. Amen. Now, Jesus said that it's knowing the truth that will set us free, John 8, 32. Now, if that's true, then the converse is also true. Believing lies is what keeps us trapped. When the Spirit of God touches our lives, he often first exposes to our mind any faulty thinking that we've picked up. And we want to give you the opportunity at the end of every session to pause. And we, we want to allow the Holy Spirit to reveal to us any areas in our belief system that are not quite in line with what God tells us in his word. At the back of your workbooks, the last two pages, there's a section entitled Lies List. So you have a look at it. Now this is a place where you can keep a running journal of what the Holy Spirit may reveal to you during these sessions. Between sessions five and six, we're going to invite you to take part in a process called the steps to experiencing God's grace. And that is an opportunity for you, just between you and God, to do business with these things and to formulate a longer term strategy for renewing your mind. So I'm going to pray again, just to ask God to reveal to us those areas that this session may have brought out. Lord, 
Uh, we've considered that amazing illustration that you gave of the two brothers and their loving father. Would you draw our attention now to areas that we're struggling to believe? Areas where um, our belief system is a little out of line with what is really true about you and our relationship with you. And we ask that in the name of Jesus, the one who made our return to you possible. Amen. So just spend a little time, just in silence, letting the Holy Spirit reveal to you where your belief system is a little offline. And where God shows you that, just write down the lie in the left-hand column of your lies list on those last two pages of your workbook. See, maybe this session has highlighted lies such as, what I have done is too bad for God to forgive me or accept me back. Or God loves other people, I know that, but he doesn't really love me. Or I have to live up to a certain set of standards for God to be pleased with me. Or maybe something like, God loves me more when I work hard for him. Now, before the next session, if you can, try to fill in the right-hand column too, which is labelled truth, by finding one or more verses from the Bible that tell you the direct opposite of the lie. In other words, what is actually true. And to give you some encouragement to do that, just imagine for a minute how different your life would be and how different your relationship with God would be if you didn't believe those things anymore, but you were able genuinely to take hold of the truth in your heart, not just your head. And our real prayer for everybody who goes through this course is that you won't just receive this wonderful truth here, but it will make that journey down to here. We'll see you next time.